Good evening, everyone. Good evening. My name is Chris Gordon and I'm the Events Manager for Readings. My role tonight is to welcome you all here to the wonderful Melbourne Athenaeum. On behalf of Readings, on behalf of the publishing house, Alan and Unwin, and on behalf of the Victorian Women's Trust, whose tireless work we all benefit from. So, good evening, feminists. As you all well know, to gather a thousand feminists in one room takes more than goodwill. It means leaving work early. It means organising babysitters. It means organising transport, dinner. It means organising drinks. <laughs> the end result, though, is that we are all here together to share something fundamental. We want a new certainty. Tonight we are going to be eavesdropping on a conversation from two extraordinary journalists. To begin with, I'd like to introduce you to Jan Fran, journalist and TV presenter. She currently hosts The Feed on SBS Viceland and she appears regularly on the Sky News and the ABC. She was a finalist for the 2018 Walkley for Women's Leadership in Media. Jan. And friends, I want to introduce you to Melbourne's own fearless feminist champion, Clem Ford. Now, before I disappear tonight, I've got one task for all of you. Uh, I'm going to ask that you raise your book. Raise it as high as you can, come on. Your yes. signed first edition copy of Boys Will Be Boys so that we can enjoy seeing 1,000 feminists raise their arms. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Anyone, I'm going to give you this. I'm just giving her a prop. Leaning yeah. my butt as far away. Lean on in. New, new face. <laughs> Enjoy the evening. It will finish right on 7.30 tonight. There will not be an opportunity for a questions, but I think that you already know the answer. Good night, everyone. <laughs> Good are you bloody raging femos? God, God, that was such a gorgeous picture, just sitting up here, seeing a sea of those books. I can't tell you how honoured I am to be here and how stoked I am to see a packed out theatre for the launch of Clem Ford's Boys Will Be Boys. Give yourself a round of applause. Give her a round of applause. Yes, we got a lady fist pumping over here. I like that. I'm into that. Uh, <laughs> my name is Jan Fran. I host a show called The Feed on SBS Viceland. Um, 
I can see that maybe there are some of you in the audience that don't quite know who I am. That's okay. My grandmother thinks I host a food show. <laughs> uh, on ABC. <laughs> so there's that. Uh, every time she sees me, she says, how's the ABC? I say, no, I don't work for the ABC. I work for SBS. And she says, what's the difference? And I say, well, nothing now that we're both looking for new managing directors. <laughs> no, of course there's a difference. Um, we have less viewers. Um, although, hey, we live in a world of alternative facts, so the feed's the highest rated show on television. Woo! And I've won a fucking Oscar. <laughs> Um, as I said, I'm so happy to be here in Melbourne. Um, and look, as a Sydney cider, that really does take a lot for me to say. Um, I got served a short black from a test tube this morning. So I don't know what the fuck's going on here, but y'all need to be stopped. Um, but you know what? I wasn't even mad because it meant that I got to be here and that I got to be here with Clem. I got to be here with Clem launching her book and I got to be here with all of you. Um, and it's already been such a memorable night for me and it hasn't even started. I devoured Boys Will Be Boys so fast that I developed a tiny neck spasm here from the extensive amount of nodding that I did <laughs> while reading the book. <laughs> You, guys, you know those type of guys that like Kanye conversations? Yeah, with like, I'ma let you finish, but... <laughs> Clementine takes exactly what you are thinking in that moment, and then she puts it into words, and then she arranges those words so perfectly in this book. Probably the best way to describe the book actually comes from Clem herself. I think she might be a little bit pissed that I, that I stole her line, I apologise. Um, but this book is not about how men are shit. It is about how the world that we live in enables men to do deeply shitty things. There's a great line that's kind of stuck in my head about feminism, feminism in general, what, what feminism means. Um, I think it comes from Betty Friedan's A Feminine Mystique, but it goes something along the lines of feminism is not a fight against men. Feminism is a fight against bad principles. And it doesn't matter whether you are a man or whether you are a woman, you can fight against bad principles. So I would urge you, and I see that you already have, but I'd urge you to buy this book, not just for yourselves, but I'd urge you to buy it for your partners, for your brothers, for your fathers, for your cousins. Buy it for the men in your life and then just stare at them intently <laughs> as they read it and occasionally shout, do you see what I'm saying now? Do you? Yeah, Christmas has just got feminist. <laughs> All right, without further ado, you didn't come here to see me, you came here to hear from the woman herself, Clementine Ford. So let's have a conversation, people. Round of applause. I feel like I could sit here and listen to you do 45 more minutes. Yeah, no, don't. Do not tempt me. <laughs> um, before we start, I, I kind of want to ask you to read a little part of your book, um, sort of a part that kind of sticks out with you that you want the audience to sort of hear from. Um, yeah, I'm going to preface this by saying that I just got off a flight this morning as well from LA, so I, th I feel okay but at some point I may start speaking in tongues. I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. So apologies in advance. 
I'm just going to read a little bit just from the introduction because it kind of is a really good summary of, of what the book's about. A month before I published my first book, Fight Like a Girl, I faced one of my toughest challenges yet as a feminist. I became the mother of a boy. I often hear from parents that they're frightened of having girls in this world. We know what violence can be done to our daughters, and people on the whole seem desperate to find a solution to this. Practice situational awareness. Curiously, this search for solutions has yet to include looking at ways to change the behaviour of boys. Instead, we see general pleas to recognise the humanity of girls and women by positioning them in relation to men. She's somebody's daughter, sister, mother, wife, so you must treat her with the reverence with which you treat your own daughters, sisters, mothers, wives. But who is he, the shadow man thought to be responsible for all this harm? Is he a mythical creature who hides in the cracks of alley walls, emerging only to wreak havoc on the women who will later be considered naive and foolish for failing to take their own safety seriously? Is he a monster, a loner, a basement dweller getting his kicks out of harassing women on the internet because he's never talked to one in his entire life? A sexual deviant, a criminal, a sadist? In some cases, yes. Okay, except for the bit about living in the wall. But in the vast majority of cases, no. These shadow men live very much in the daylight. And just like the women they victimise, hurt, belittle, betray and wield power over, they also have familial connections. They're probably somebody's brother, father, husband. They're more likely than not somebody's colleague, teammate, friend. In every single case, they are somebody's son. And yet we never hear anyone say that they're afraid of having a son in the way that they fear having a daughter. Why? Why are they not afraid of how the world conditions boys to ignore sexism, to dismiss emotions that are considered too feminine, to become macho, to express entitlement, to believe themselves worthy of privilege and praise just because they've grown up hearing how special they are, to hurt women either alone but sometimes together because it makes them feel powerful. Our culture is geared towards privileging boys. They are supported to be our leaders, our bosses, our CEOs, heads of households and legislators. Indeed, the world we live in has been designed by men with the purpose of elevating them to and keeping them in power. The patriarchal system under which, under which we all labour is designed to uphold this power while punishing those who challenge its existence in any way. Within this structure, boys are given the space to unfurl and grow, to creep further and further outwards, while girls are forced to retreat ever more inwards. Every excuse is made for boys to allow them to continue on this path to greatness, even as it creates a rigid blueprint for what masculinity and its inscribed power is supposed to look like. Because everyone knows what boys are like. They're rambunctious. They like to roughhouse and fool around. Boys are drawn to adventure. As children, they like dinosaurs and toy guns and clothes emblazoned with cars. They have no such thing as an inside voice, preferring instead to roar wherever they go. Boys are messy and boisterous, barreling through the world with an admirable lack of restraint. <laughs> Here comes Trouble. Trouble's his middle name. But boys take care of each other. They have each other's backs. They look after their mates. Mateship is very important to boys. Boys don't cut each other's lunches. You don't go after your mate's missus and you aren't allowed to date their sister unless you get permission, because boys respect each other's property, especially when they're married to it or share the same DNA. Boys respect each other most of all and close ranks against anyone else who threatens that. Don't dog the boys. Boys like girls. They tease and hit girls because they like them so much, pulling their hair and pushing them around in accordance with the strength of their crushes. Boys are red-blooded. 
They go after what they want. They can't help themselves. Girls have to be on their guard around boys. If girls fail to take the proper precautions to keep themselves out of harm's way, they only have themselves to blame. Boys don't mean to hurt girls, they just lose control. They make mistakes. Hasn't everyone made a mistake at some point in their life? They don't deserve to have their lives ruined over it. Boys have promising futures. They shouldn't be punished for a lapse in judgment, an action that was entirely out of character. Where was the girl in all this? Doesn't it take two to tango? Shouldn't she have been more careful? She should have known what she was getting into dealing with a boy. It's not as if we don't know what boys are like. Boys will be boys after all. The kind of boyhood that's codified by mainstream cis-normative Western society is not an innate state of being. Boys can, I hear that phone. <laughs> I'm just gonna sit here and stare until you turn it off. I'm gonna make you do the Game of Thrones walk. Shame! <laughs> Boys can and will be many things, but what the boys in our world are currently conditioned to be as a rule is entitled, domineering, sexist, privileged, and in all too many cases, violent. We have the power to change that. One of the many benefits that will come from dismantling patriarchy is the liberation of boys and men from its grip. Boys are not born with a disdain for girls or for the parts of themselves that are coded as feminine. The unapologetic, unselfconscious desire for affection and tenderness that pours out of little boys is not a gift given to them by nature to be enjoyed, enjoyed briefly before receding against the grain of their growing limbs. Society forces this tenderness out of boys in the same way it punishes forthrightness in girls, rebranding them as sissy and bossy, respectively. As Bell Hook says, patriarchy and its insidious messaging teaches boys to kill off the emotional parts of themselves. But if we as their protectors do nothing to stop this, then we might as well be handing them the knives. Everyone's afraid that their daughters might be hurt. No one seems to be scared that their sons might be the ones to do it. This book took me a year to write, but it's the culmination of many years of writing about power, abuse, privilege, male entitlement and rape culture. After all that, here's what I've learned. We shouldn't just be scared, we should be fucking terrified. Okay. I, I, I do want to point out as well that this is, this is actually quite a hopeful book. That's... <laughs> okay. Um, when... It's funny because I, I, after I finished writing it, and it was such a slog to actually sit down and write a lot of these chapters, um, and they're not all... I think some people might go into it with the impression that every chapter is just boom, 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 rape, rape, violence. But actually, a lot of the early chapters are about all of the foundational stuff of that. So the first chapter is called It's a Boy, and it's about how children are gendered even before they're born, and the, the need that people have to assign gender to an unborn child so that they can feel comfortable in coding not just the baby, but in how they sort of welcome that baby into the world. Yeah. And how um, all of those things then contribute to these really rigid coding of boys and girls that ends up being harmful. And then, then there's a chapter just about pop culture and, and the space that boys and girls occupy in films and in terms of the stories that are being reflected back at them. Um, but it was still quite an intense experience to sit there and like sit in these spaces mm. for so many months that when I finished it and 
it, and it was f definitely, definitely finished and I definitely couldn't make any more changes to it. I went through a period, and I still feel a bit nervous about it now actually, a period where I was just worried that people would read it and just feel completely demoralised by the whole experience and so exhausted and drained that they would either finish it and just go, oh, well, that was horrendous, mm. or put it down while reading it because, I mean, as I, I have that feeling now dealing with all the stuff with, you know, that's coming out with Brett Kavanaugh and the Supreme Court in America, just that sense of fatigue and rage that has no outlet yeah. because we, we have no appropriate... Oh, not appropriate, but we have no ways to speak about this without being met with this barrage of gaslighting. Yeah. When, I mean, ending that, on that paragraph that you just read, you know, that we shouldn't be scared, we should be terrified. What, what is it you think that, that we should be terrified of? Or what is, this, what is there to be scared of? I think that the, we should be scared of how apathetic people are in general and how apathetic mainstream society is about dealing with this problem, about dealing with the reality of it. Um, you know, we've been fortunate, particularly in Melbourne, to have lots of really incredible conversations in progressive spaces over the last few years about victim blaming and um, the propensity for women to always be the ones that have to be the gatekeepers and be responsible for what happens to them. And, and you know, that, uh, there was this great um, meme that I saw the other day where it was just two, two different quotations and it was, they're obviously sarcastic. So um, the first one was, well, he was drunk, so he's not responsible for his actions. And then the second one, one was, she was drunk, so she's responsible for what happened to her. And just having to constantly deal with that, those shifting goalposts all the time. So we don't actually really know where the target is that we're meant to be aiming for, because every time we come up with an ad accurate and adequate response for some of the arguments that are made in favour of us not being able to speak out and, you know, for our own humanity. Mm. The goalposts shift again and it's, it's like, as I said, this constant system of gaslighting and devil's advocacy and mm. um, frustration that makes it really impossible for us to continue having the energy to even have these conversations. So I think that we should be terrified in that respect. But I think we should also be terrified because there are a lot of young men out there who are behaving in reprehensible ways and who are being emboldened to behave in reprehensible ways by some of the communities that they are engaging with. And um, the radicalization of young white men in particular is a huge problem that a lot of mainstream society doesn't seem willing to address. Does this seem like it's something that's particular of our time, given that we live in such a connected world and where people are able to exchange ideas so quickly with people on the other side of the world? Mm. Or is this something that has happened sort of throughout history? Where, where, where do you see this time in terms of sort of um, the, the pushback by men against feminism or against women? I think it's always happened. I think that it's you know, men and the codes of brotherhood have always supported men, particularly those who occupy the, the most levels of privilege in society, to be able to behave in this way that um, speaks to their learned faith. And when I say learned faith, I mean not just the learned faith that the world tells them, but also things that they've learned in their family as well. That the world and power is theirs to inherit and nothing should stand in the way of that. And anything that does stand in the way of that is an obstacle that needs to be taken down. Um, I think that that's always happened. You know, I think men have always colluded with each other to rape women. 
as a bonding exercise. Um, that's always been something that women have been subjected to. I think that the problem now with, or how it's being exacerbated now, is that it can kind of come, it can find a place in a system that allows for more and more men to communicate with each other. Mm. Um, so every, if you think about- I never heard of incels until like last year. Yeah. And I don't know if it's cause, that's because they weren't around or because they just didn't have a platform by which to espouse their um, you know, manifestos to the world. Well, that's, that's a good point, actually, because just if you could just yell out, if you haven't heard of what an incel is, just yell. So, okay, you're in for a ride. Right, that's interesting. <laughs> I, I'm surprised by that yeah. because... I'm surprised by that just because we did have that recent um, situation in Toronto where an incel drove a van into a group of people um, and paid tribute on Facebook before he did it to Elliot Roger, who was... Elliot Roger was the, the man in 2014 who killed six people in Isla Vista because women wouldn't have sex with him. And it was really as simple as that. And he left a, a, a manifesto that was over 100 page, pages long that was just... The, tor the torturous thoughts of a privileged young man who felt like he wasn't being adequately rewarded with all the things that he felt entitled to. The chief thing among that being like conventionally beautiful trophy type women mm. um, acknowledging and um, reinforcing his masculinity by way of fucking him. Um, and so incel stands for involuntary celibate, which ironically was a term that was created by a queer woman, but she didn't mean it in the way that it's kind of been co-opted and, and claimed now. And, and I spent a little bit of time in incel communities while writing about this, a chapter that talks about the manosphere and incels is a part of that. And I spent a bit of time in those communities and it was, it was a dark experience. Yeah. Um, because the sense that, I think that this is one of the problems as well. I don't have a lot of sympathy for, for incels, for example, but I do have concerns and sympathy for a system that has been so broken in teaching men what their place is in the world um, and what they're entitled to, that they truly see women as being, I mean, their problem really is, is how they fit on the hierarchy of other men in a patriarchy. And feminism, of course, is the thing that seeks to dismantle all of that mm. for, not primarily for their benefit, but that they will benefit from it. And yet they still see women as this system that, that can enhance or decrease their masculine power according to how other men judge them. Yeah, you sort um, of say something in the book that it's, um, you know, um, whatever ailments that that particular group of people might be feeling, um, or the grievances that men's rights activists might have are certainly legitimate, but it's not feminism that's responsible. No. It's patriarchy. Yeah. All of men's problems come from patriarchy. Um, but, you know, men's rights activists, who I also write about in the book as well, and, and uh, you know, a, a wing of that is the father's rights activists who love to complain about the family court and talk about the family court as being this, you know, feminised... <laughs> yeah, like there's any part of the law that's in favour of women. <laughs> um, but this feminised part of the law that, that 
works actively to destroy their lives. Um, you know, and firstly, by the way, if you know anything about the child support debt in this country, that's bullshit. Um, but this idea that somehow... I think that their problem is that they do understand that they suffer somewhat under this system, but they misplace where they... A, where their suffering comes from, and B, what their suffering is. They don't recognise that their suffering comes from the patriarchal world that we live in that um, accords value to people based on an arbitrary system of things that goes beyond gender but also includes white supremacy, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, classism, a whole range of things, which is why you'll also have white men say things like, oh, well, I grew up poor and therefore I've suffered too and so... Um, you know, don't, don't point out my whiteness. And you're like, yeah, but you've never suffered because... You might have suffered because you're poor, but you didn't suffer because you were white, and you didn't suffer as much as a poor person of colour. Um, so I think it's about that misplacing, uh, where, where, as I said, where their suffering comes from and what their suffering is. Mm. And their way of kind of, like, coming to terms with that or trying to regain whatever control they feel they've lost as men over that is to try and reassert dominance over women and, and to fixate their, <coughs> the blame of their problem on feminism because feminism is the, the project that is trying to expose and dismantle the system that they still really want to kind of sit at the top of. Because mm. I, I feel this book is like, it's, it's such a... I think that in, in you know a few years' time, it's going to be a real symbol of the times that we're living in now. You know, it's so interwoven around the way we communicate online, the you know MRAs, incels, the kind of creatures that have risen up from this online swamp that we didn't even know about five years ago, right? Um, but in your book, you talk about, and you've got a, a chapter that's broken down very succinctly. I'm sure you'll all come across this: the um, the not all men's. Yeah. Has anybody said not all men here before? <laughs> um, but you, 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 kind, you kind of talk about that rejoinder quite a fair bit, and there's a few different types of, uh, of and it's not just, not just guys, although I would say it would be predominantly guys, who say not all men to any kind oh of God. argument around feminism. <laughs> Take it away. The, I mean, we all know... And we've all had experience of men who insist... Who can, you can, they can either be presented with the most traumatising of stories from... And that's the other thing as well, is that, you know, particularly when you're talking about the battle between... Uh, the battle for um, equality of the genders, women are the ones who still have to perpetually traumatise themselves publicly in order to try and get people to pay attention. Um, you know, I point out in this book that... When Me Too happened, everyone was like, oh my, everyone, men were like, oh my God, I just can't believe that this is, this is just so crazy. Like, I just had no idea. Like, it's just awful to hear all of the women that I know talking about these, I mean, we're not on the not all men here, obviously, because some of them had different things to say, but I just can't believe that, that you know, so many women have had so many awful stories. And you're like, really? You can't believe that? Were you not present during 2014 when Yes All Women happened after Elliot Roger killed all those people in Isla Vista? Do you not speak to the women in your life? Do you not have conversations with them? Do you not ask them any questions? And it's something that I've been really... Um, has become really, really apparent to me recently, and I think it's a, it's a broad-sweeping problem, but I see it especially exemplified in the behaviour of Donald Trump 
particularly in, in the commentaries that he's made around Brett Kavanaugh. Um, and it, just a couple of days ago, he tweeted that if Dr. Ford really had been assaulted the way that she said, then she would have laid charges at the time. Yeah. And her love, she or her loving parents would have laid charges at the time. And I mean, like, I, I would imagine that everyone in this room understands my fury at that statement. It doesn't need to be spelt out why that's so ridiculous and so insulting. But it just made it so obvious to me that this is a man who is everything that we know that he is, but he also just completely embodies a total lack of curiosity about anything outside of his own life, his own wants, and his own views on the world. And I think that that's a problem for a lot of men, is that they even... Um, mm. And I always feel uh, like I have to be really careful when I say lines like, even the good ones, because I don't actually think that a lot of men are all, really all that good, you know. I, <laughs> which isn't to say that I think that they're bad. I just think that they're neutral. Yeah. I think that they, it's really easy for men to sort of count themselves as one of the good guys, but check in and out of that when they feel like it. You know, the fact that so many of them continue to be perpetually surprised by the terrible things that they're confronted with happening, that happen to women just shows me how neutral they are. And I think that that comes down to this like total lack of curiosity. And I'm just gonna, um, I know you asked about not all men, but I'm just gonna use that opportunity to segue into Louis C.K. Oh, please. Um, so I have a chapter in this book called It's Just a Joke, and it's about the insistence from uh, male comedians. Um, and for the pod podcast, that's quote unquote comedians, because we all know men aren't really very good at being funny. Um, <laughs> it's just, I just don't think. They're just not know, funny. It's not funny. Um, in fact, I, I once tweeted quite provocatively. I was, I was trying to be. Wait, you tweeted provocatively? I tweeted provocatively. <laughs> I tweeted um, as an experiment one day. Uh, <laughs> You know, I just don't think men are very funny. <laughs> and it's not like, I mean, I feel like it's fairly obvious what the purpose of that tweet is. But then this whole like slew of not even the trolls, but like Blue good guys who like self-described allies who even came in and said things like, well, I consider myself an ally, but just came in and just like explained to me how offensive my tweet was and how it would be unacceptable for someone to say that about women. And then one guy just like listed all of the male comedians that he knew at me. And I feel like just on its whole, that proves the original tweet correct, that men just aren't very funny. Because they're, they're not very good at laughing about jokes, laughing at jokes about themselves. Anyway, so Louis C.K., has, so in this chapter, it's just a joke. It's, it deals with the overwhelming majority of comedians who get work and who are platformed and who are celebrated are white men and their insistence that they be allowed to tell jokes that kick down at one of the most traumatizing things that can happen to someone. Um, and, and also talk about it as if it's like them walking on the edge, you know, like, oh, if you're too, if you don't like edgy comedy, then maybe you should stay away. Um, and Louis C.K. has always been held up as like this sort of exemplar of 
a, a, a comedian who really tapped into the human condition. He was just so honest. He was just so honest about himself, wasn't he? You know, meanwhile, over the, the years and years and years of allegations being made against him, he just treated them as if they were totally beneath him to even engage with them. He even said at one point that, I don't deal with rumours because I feel like once you, once you acknowledge the rumours, then, you know, you make, you make it a point that... He didn't say you make them true, but he implied that like you make them something that's worth talking about. So it was always beneath him to even acknowledge these rumours about him masturbating in front of women with far less power than him in his career, and sorry, in his in, in his industry. And at the same time, as his career like really blew up, people were like, "Oh, Louis C.K. is just so amazing. He's just such a smart comic. You know, he's just really." really taps into the human condition and he's just so honest about himself. And um, in 2014, uh, a, a comedian called Daniel Tosh did a set at the Laugh Factory in LA and uh, some of you may know this story, but he, Daniel Tosh is known for telling a lot of jokes about rape. He's very edgy that way. <laughs> and he told a joke that had some, a line, and I'm paraphrasing, but a line, something about, you know, like how rape jokes are always funny. And a woman in the room said, actually, rape jokes are never funny. And he pointed at her in front of this whole room of people and he said, see that woman there? Wouldn't it be hilarious if she got raped by like five guys right now? And she uh, left very uh, shook by that. And a Tumblr post was then written, um, I think, by her friend the next day. And it was either her or her friend, but anyway, it, it exposed what had happened. And all of these male comedians came out in full force to defend Tosh and uh, talk, you know, again, defend their space as being one where men, they, they've said people, but they meant men, should be allowed to go in and say and do whatever they want. Um, again, that kind of broadly comes back to this idea that men should never have an obstacle placed in their path to, to being considered great, particularly not an obstacle that looks like a woman. That's an insult. Um, and Louis C.K. was one of these comedians that tweeted something positively towards Daniel Tosh. He said something about, he said something like, you're, very, you're funny and you have pretty eyes. And he was really slammed for that. And then later on, when he appeared on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, and he said, oh, I wasn't really aware of what had happened then because I was on a self-imposed social media ban. Bear in mind, this is a, a few months after Gorka first published allegations against Louis C.K., which he wouldn't engage with. And he said, you know, I was just, I was on a self-imposed social media ban and I was watching Tosh 2.0 on the comedy network, Comedy Central, yeah. whatever, white men making jokes. And, <laughs> and, I've, and I just thought he was funny, so I tweeted at him. And he said, but you know what? Like, I always used to think that, you know, you could make a joke about anything. Rape, the Holocaust, well, whatever, you know, a joke about anything. But since this whole thing happened, you know, I've had some women emailing me and they've told me that, you know, rape is really something that polices women's lives. And I just, that's just something that I didn't know before. And, you know, I, I know that now. And I can still appreciate the rape jokes. And this was his... I'm, I, it's almost verbatim because mm. I've said that story so many times. Um, and I, I remember reading that as I was writing this, and this, as I wrote that chapter, it was after actually he had to acknowledge that the allegations against him were true, in a very bloviated, self-important statement that talked, mentioned four times how deeply admired he was by people, <laughs> and not 
once the word sorry. And I thought, that's a really good analogy for how white men in particular are just placed on this like smooth track to being able to occupy as much greatness in the world as they want. Because this is a man who was, as I said, heralded and praised for his like deeply human comedy, for his total connection to the human condition, for his ability to be able to stand in front of a room full of people and tell them something about humanity that they didn't know before. And it took him almost five decades to realise that rape is something that polices women's lives. That's how little curiosity he had about the lives of half of his audience. Mm. Um, and that's kind of what uh, one of the biggest problems, I think, that I, in, I realised while writing this was that it's not even so much that it comes back to that idea of neutrality. So when people say, like, oh, well, not all men, not all men, they're like, yeah, but not all men are actually doing anything to change the systems that they live in. They're not doing a whole lot to change the realities of lives for the women who are around them. They're not even doing a whole lot to actually talk to women and mm. ask them about their lives. Once again, in the Louis C.K. scenario, it required women having to email him and say, well, actually, like, this is something that's happened to me or this is why we feel this way. And how many times do you feel most of the people in this room are women. How many times do you feel that you have to have those tiring, frustrating conversations, um, not even just with men who are hostile to you, but with the men who are supposed to love you about what it's like to live in the world as a woman and have them constantly just be like, oh, I just didn't know. Also, the other thing that women do, and thankfully far fewer of them seem to be doing it now, but the ones who have yet to kind of really interrogate it in themselves, I think, feel really obliged to constantly provide the disclaimer that, you know, not all men are bad. In fact, most men are wonderful. Most men are just 99.9% of men are incredible, yeah, not you. wonderful human beings. I, I left a comment on a Facebook group that I'm in yesterday. Again, I was being a bit provocative. Um, a woman was complaining about her partner and, oh, and sorry, an ex-boyfriend who had ridiculed and shamed her for her body. And I just wrote, men are trash. And, <laughs> and I, I knew that this, I mean, this wasn't necessarily a feminist group that I was in. It was, I knew it would probably yield some It was the public backlash. library of Victoria. <laughs> It took like three seconds for someone, to, for a woman to come in and just list all of these wonderful men that she knew and then another woman to come in and say that this is, it's unacceptable to speak about another gender like this. And I tried to say, look, I'm talking about, I'm not talking about individual men, I'm talking about how men function under a system. And under a system, men are trash. <laughs> and and then, I, then I, I said something that I, like, I feel like I just say over and over and over again, and again, I think a lot of women in this room will have this experience, of just feeling so sad and angry but mainly sad that women work so hard to let men know that they're not trying to hurt them, to let men know that they're not standing in their way, to defend men at every point and men will never, ever, ever defend women the way that women defend men. 
They just won. Of course not. <laughs> Look at all the women who've come out in support of Brett Kavanaugh. You know, five women from five random Republican women who it turned out had previously run for office who came out and, you know, said on the news that, oh, well, no, I don't think that... I, I don't think that he should be punished this. I don't think... Uh, a range of responses from, I don't believe that this happened, to one woman saying, what teenage boy hasn't done that? <laughs> you know, this is... Who the, the fuck's that? <laughs> this Republican woman. This allegation made by Dr Ford against Brett Kavanaugh, now there are three women who've come out with allegations against him, but was that he, I'm sorry, like I'm gonna describe something graphic here, but that he trapped her in a room when she was 15 years old at a party, locked the door and held her down on the bed, covered her mouth so that she couldn't scream and tried to take her clothes off. What teenage boy hasn't done that? Yeah. You know, and that's interesting, like it goes back to the title, Boys Will Be Boys, that again, it's those moving goalposts, is that on the one hand we're told, oh, well, what teenage boy hasn't done that? Boys will be boys. And yet when you talk about how bad that is. People are like, oh, well, you know, stop demonising men. You just, you bloody feminists think all men are rapists. And you can't actually win in that conversation because I think what it comes down to is that men who support that ideology mm. and the women who fervently support that ideology as well because they're so scared that men will think that they don't like them actually don't care whether or not a white privileged prep school boy dragged a girl into the room, into a room and held her down in a bed. They don't care, whatever. He's gonna be a Supreme Court judge and it's not fair that all these women are coming out now and stopping him from achieving his dream. Mm. What, what, how dare they? How dare they indeed? How dare they indeed? What, 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 do, you, what do you sort of, um, what, how, how do you hope that men will change? I mean, because I guess this is the, this is the question that I kind of, and I, I'm sure that we've all sort of had these conversations after a few wines, you know, you get into the conversation about Me Too or whatever it is, and, you know, a, a guy might pop up who wants to be a good they dude. They do, they just pop up, they don't just, they? They just pop up. <laughs> just from... May I play devil's advocate? <laughs> um, Sorry, I heard you talking about feminism. <laughs> yeah, if you, if, you, if you say Me Too three times, they just pop up with a Jordan Peterson YouTube video. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen this one, Jan? You should really watch this one. But, but, but I, I think that there, there, there would be men who would, who want to be good dudes, right? Or, or who want to contribute in some way to this. What, what do you hope that they, they do? Like, what, what would you like them to do in a situation where a woman is explaining, um, you know, uh, talking about Me Too or talking about women's issues? How, how do you hope men should react? Um, well, firstly, I should say that I... I don't have all the answers for that. Um, oftentimes, like one of the most polite forms of criticism I get is from people who say, oh, well, you're very good at listing the problems, but you don't come up with any solutions. And I think, well, do I have to do all the work? <laughs> um, but also, I, I know what the problems are, but I don't necessarily know what the solutions are. That's why it requires a whole community Response, you know, it requires us all working within the small uh, networks of people that we have to try and create change. But I, I guess, like, just personally in my own life, I mean, I am actually surrounded by pretty good men. They're all right. 
Um, <laughs> mainly because I don't actually really spend much time with men at all. <laughs> so the one or two that I spend time with are okay. Um, but I think that one of the things that we all probably want is just for them to listen more and to not have to explain our experiences back to us in a way that makes them feel comfortable. Um, to not listen to what we've said about something that's happened to us and then try and come up with a list of reasons as to how we might have interpreted that incorrectly. You know, oh, did anything really happen like that? I don't know, it doesn't sound very realistic to me. Um, one of the things that I love is when I uh, tell men I don't know, or, like if there's a thread or something on social media or whatever, and they come back and they say, I don't think that it happened like that, or file that under things that never happened, or my favourite, I put it to you that what really happened was. <laughs> and it's just, I think that there are some people who actively do that to be disruptive and to, because they, they don't like women and they don't want to listen to women talking about the reality of their lives. But there are lots of men who don't realise that they're doing that and once they, excuse me, I just did a burp. Please. Um, once they We're all realize, friends here, hey? Once they realise that they're guilty of that and they are actually willing to try and change it, then they start taking steps to do things It's like curiosity, isn't it? It's curiosity right? again, it's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's being curious about it. There, there was a great podcast, uh, sorry, a great segment on This American Life. Um, I think this one came out last year and it was, uh, I, I can't remember her name, um, which is terrible of me, but... It's an Australian woman, an Australian journalist, who did a short story for This American Life about catcalling in King's Cross, in The Cross. Um, and it sort of came about because she was walking down the street one day and these two men catcalled her. And she had a, a recording equipment on her, so she decided to go back and talk to them about it and say, why did you do that? What propels you to do that kind of thing? And these two guys are just like, oh, you know, we're just having a bit of fun. Like, everything you've heard about catcalling, we're just, just having a bit of fun. Women love it. They love it. And she was saying, well, I'm telling you that I'm a woman and I don't love it. And I know most women don't love it. And I, I know if you go and actually ask these women, you know, these groups, these guys hang out there and catcall. Like, it's not just like they're just walking to work and they just decide to, this is their activity. <laughs> and one of the guys described, and the thing is as well that was interesting is that on the audio, he came across as quite an affable young bloke, you know, which I think is what makes it so tricky is that it's not actually a thing of like, well, terrible, you know, a shadow man that falls out of the wall that does these terrible things. They're actually, like, oftentimes men who, who, if you didn't know that they were doing these things, you'd be like, oh, yeah, I can have a beer with you. Mm. Um, and he, one of his favourite things to do was to spot a group of women walking down the street and then he would go and pick the one he thought was the most attractive and he'd go up behind them and slap her on the arse. And he said, they love it. They love it. They love it because they've... This is how fucked up the mindset is. They love it because they've been chosen as the most beautiful one in the group. So they feel good about themselves. And the other women, they react not angrily to him about it, but they want to be the one that's chosen next time. And she was like, I'm telling you right now that women do not like <laughs> that happening to them. And 
you know, and she said, and if they laugh, it's often it's out of nervousness, it's out of fear, you know, it's de-escalation, all of these things that women practice situational awareness. Um, and one of the guy that he was with, I mean, he was sort of, it was interesting because he was kind of saying, oh, he was listening to her, but he wasn't really listening to her, the, the affable one. He was like, oh, yeah, you know, I mean, look, if I, if I, if I thought that they weren't, if I thought they really didn't enjoy it, if I found out really that women were scared of it, then I would stop doing it. But he just, he didn't believe her. Yeah. Um, and that, at its heart is that he didn't want to stop doing it either because he found it fun. But his friend looked at her and he said, you know, oh, you don't like it, but, you know, I don't know what's happened to you in your life that's you know, made you feel this way or that's caused this for you. But, like, you can't speak for all women. And it's true, she can't speak for all women. But listening to that, like, actually made me more rageful than the guy who was slapping the woman on the ass because I thought, like, we, again, all have that experience of someone who is... of a man who is defending how patriarchy supports them against someone who is talking about how patriarchy harms them by saying, well, that's just because you've got, you've been traumatised by some guy. Like, I've had men say horrific things to me and some of the most horrific things they've taunted me with. Um, and I've been lucky that I wasn't abused as a child, but some of the things that they've taunted me with is descriptions mm -hmm. of my male family members raping me as a child and that's why I am the way that I am. And similarly to that, and this guy who's like, oh, I don't know what's happened to you in your life. I just, I think about them, right, if that's where your mind goes to, that you genuinely think that I might be this crazy feminazi because I was raped as a child, what is it in your brain that makes you want to further taunt someone who you think that might have genuinely happened to? Secondly, like, make it their problem. And then thirdly, run the risk of hurting someone else who you can't possibly know if you're slapping her ass in the street. You can't possibly know that... She, if, if, you, if your barometer for that is that, like, oh, well, only women who've had something terrible happen to them would feel bad about that. But you're like, but I'm going to take the risk anyway because it's not my problem. Yeah. Again, it's the lack of curiosity. And I feel like that is... People think about... Um, something like Adrian Bailey, and that they're very uncomfortable, they're very comfortable with framing that as being the true problem. Yeah, that the we guy need to who pops with. out of the yeah. shadows. Yeah. And, yeah. The, the actually, like, the least likely thing to happen to women. But when you start actually talking to them about the reality of the most dangerous woman, uh, sorry, the most dangerous man a woman can spend time with is the man who's sitting across from her at the dinner table, statistically speaking, then just the, like, their inability to kind of engage with that reality is what then forces them to project all of this. Oh, it's just you. You're just bloody crazy, aren't you? Mm. Um, we are almost out of time. We've got, we've got about two minutes left, but I kind of want to ask you about this because I think it's an important point and it kind of... You, you, can, you can see it interwoven throughout the book, but between your last book and this book, you had a son. Um, has that... What, what has that taught you, first of all? And, um, and I've asked you this question before, but do you, do, you, do you have any kind of reservations or fears that your son might grow up to be a dickhead? <laughs> um, yes. 
But not because I think that that's his nature, but just because I think once you can only protect them from other people for so long and you can't be assured when they go out into... I mean, he's luckily... Ha, his childcare is um, shared care and that all of the childcare workers that... Um, Feminist childcare. Well, they're amazing and they would never tolerate any of that boys do this and girls do that yeah. crap, which is great. So I feel very safe with him in the care of um, those wonderful people. But once they go to school or, you know, go to their friend's house who maybe they're not quite so fastidious about that stuff, you know, a lot of my friends talk about that switch in age where their kid starts coming home with this just very, very deeply rigid gendered conditioning that they certainly didn't learn in their home, but that they come home and they say, oh, well, I can't wear those, that's for girls, or whatever it might be. Um, so I worry about that. I worry about... Uh, I worry about how to control... No, you can't control it, but I worry about how to continue to maintain a really open space where he feels like he can have conversations with me and his dad. And, I, you know, I partly don't worry so much about the dickhead thing because his dad's, like, a wonderful influence on him. And, you know, he's a very gentle kind of... He has a very gentle masculinity that I think will, you know, encourage that in our son. Um, but I don't know. You, ne you never know. And I would break... What, wor what worries me more is not that he'll turn out to be a dickhead, but that he will be broken by... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, but I suppose, I mean, that's fair, but, you know, after having written a book like this, I'm worried that he'll be broken by the world that we live in and that all of the beautiful softness and, and curiosity again and lovely gentleness that I see in him is going to be beaten out of him. And I worry about that. But that all starts with you. I think he's got a great foundation with a mother like you and a father like his dad. So. <laughs> On that note, um, I'm afraid that we have to end today's proceedings. Thank you so much to all of you for coming out. I can't see the ones at the back there, but I know you're there. Shout out, holla! Um, Thank you for coming. I. The discussions that we are having in this country around feminism, um, the, the place that we're in now, the galvanisation that I see and I feel um, with women, with, that starts here with you guys, but that is extending out, I think that is due in no small part to this woman over here. Um, yeah, kudos. Really. Well, we can yes. do... And for all the shit that you've popped, and for all the years of writing that, um, that you've done, I think we've all said either to ourselves, perhaps to someone else, or even to Clementine herself, thank you, thank you, thank you for doing well, what can you're I, doing. Well, can thank I you. just, sorry, we're just going to do a bit of mutual, this is oh. one of the wonderful things that women do as well, is that we bolster each other up, hopefully. I am so grateful that you came and did this. You were my first choice, and I was like, we've got to get Jan Fran to do this. She's hilarious, Jan... Uh, uh, her France are fucking killer, by the way. Thank you. Um, and I really, really appreciate you coming 
all the way to cold, chilly Melbourne for this. And I also just wanted to say as well that I, I just wanted to get everyone to give a round of applause to Chris Gordon from Readings, because Chris <laughs> is seriously one of the biggest supporters of feminist writing in this city, and she's incredible. And, you know, we couldn't do it without... I, I couldn't be here without the support that I've had from Readings, so I really am so grateful. Fab. Thanks, everyone. Woo!